Hey, God, it's good to be here today. We thank you uh, for the rain. Thanks for the way it just instantly brings uh, fresh life and new life and uh, green to the, this beautiful world in which you've given us. Lord, I thank you for the youth camp. Thank you for bringing all of our young people back here safely. But more than that, thank you uh, for the relationships that have been forged. Thank you for uh, the food that's been consumed. And thank you, God, for the way uh, you've spoken to them and uh, into their group. And we pray that you would continue to do a good thing in the lives of all of our young people in this church. They are a gift and a blessing to us. And Lord, as we open your word today, I want to pray that we would be filled that we would be encouraged, that we would be challenged. But God, that we would walk out these doors this morning just a little bit closer to your heart and a little bit uh, more encouraged about the the way that you want to shower your love, your grace and your goodness upon us. Thank you for the gift of your word and the life that we can find within it. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, I'm going to endeavor to show you a video that is, uh, it's an old video from 1967. It's uh, the, the host of the video is a man by the name of Walter Cronkite. Some of you may have heard of him. He's a uh, famous uh, US news and current affairs anchor, and he does a documentary on the, the future, 1967, the house of the future, the living room of the future, the office of the future. I'm going to show you a little bit of that this morning, so have a look at the screen might spend most of his time in the home of the 21st century. This equipment here will allow him to carry on normal business activities without ever going to an office away from home. This console provides a summary of news relayed by satellite from all over the world. Now, to get a newspaper copy for permanent reference, I just turn this... You saw enough of the photo, okay? Walter Cronkite walks through the office and he shows all these huge machines and he starts and he says, this from the home of the future is where someone may be able to sit and get the news from all over the world. And by twisting a few knobs, they will be able to print out their own newspaper. He then moves on to another console equally as big and he says, and from this machine, they'll be able to check the weather and they'll be able to check the stocks and what's happening with their finances. He says, and then they'll be able to move to this machine and they haven't got it working, but they've got a color photo of somebody else there and they're saying, and from this machine and through this prototype of what we would say is a microphone, they'll be able to communicate with people in different parts of the world while looking at their image. He says, this is the the future. And he says, people expect that in the future with all these wonderful advances in technology, there's going to be so much more time for people. They'll be home so much more often. They'll have so much more time for family. They'll have increased leisure time. In actual fact, there's a suggestion that no one will work more than 30 hours a week in the reality of the future. And what will we do with all this increased leisure time? He then goes on to move into the lounge room with its big screen projection TVs and surround sound systems and 3D monitors. And he does it in a way saying we could never believe this would be true, but this is what we believe the house of the 21st century will look like. Don't you love the promise of simplicity that technology brought us? The promise of simplicity, the 30-hour work weeks that we all enjoy together, the more leisure and free time that we have. I actually love technology. Who here loves technology? 
Okay, now let's just keep your hands up for a second. There's love, which is me. Then there's those that would camp out at the Apple store overnight to get the latest product. Keep your hand up if that's you. Jakin's too embarrassed to keep his hand up, but he wants to say, that would be me. I love technology. There's something exciting about seeing the way that uh, the world has advanced technology to the point where we can do all of the things that Walter Cronkite could only imagine the family of 2000 could do. We could do it in the palm of our hand in this little thing that we call a smartphone. I remember when I was in grade 11 at school, my family bought its first computer. Mum and dad invested a lot of money. I was an only child, which has many advantages uh, for me at the time, but I was the first recipient of a computer because it was going to help my senior years of schooling. And we went out and we bought this big monster machine that sat in my office and it came with a dot matrix printer. And I was really proud because Dad had invested a lot of money in buying a set of Britannica encyclopedias that sat in our lounge room. But now I had a thing called Microsoft Encarta, which put all of that encyclopedia onto a disc and I could pull it up on my computer screen. I was so proud of this new computer that I got that the first day I got it, I got onto another program that came on CD disc called Microsoft Dangerous Creatures. It used to come with every home computer back in the mid-90s and I found the Tasmanian Devil and I printed a full page colour dot matrix Tasmanian Devil to show all of our family and friends. Such was I overwhelmed with the advancement in technology. But as technology evolved in greater ways, we've realised that the promise of simplicity and, and, and life becoming easier to some part has been true. There's things that today are easier for us because of the advances in technology, but the promise of more time, more leisure, more space, and uh, the, the capacity to escape work, well, that promise hasn't been true. And why is that true? Because we've become accessible everywhere. Think about some of the advances in technology that are great, but then on the other hand have been real challenges. Let's think about communication for a moment. Let me talk about the church context. When I was growing up as a young person in the local church, there would be someone that would sit. So what I'm saying is not that many years ago, because I'm such a young person, but not that many years ago, someone would sit in the office at the church that I grew up in, in Dubbo, and all the uh, notices would get sent to their desk, and they would sit there and they would type out They'd add a few little clip art pictures and occasionally they put italics on it because that made the thing look awesome. They would print out a church news sheet every Sunday and then it would get put in the black and white photocopier and when we really advanced, we started putting colour paper in the black and white photocopier because if it was black and white printing but on pink or green or blue or yellow paper, it just added a bit of extra flair to it. But that was the sole place that churches communicated. And then someone would usually get up on a Sunday and refer to the news sheet and say, hey, we've got a few things coming up, similar to what we do today when we give our announcements. And everybody would get that news sheet because that was your lifeblood in the life of the church. And if someone wasn't at church on Sunday, someone would think, well, I might contact them through the week and let them know about this great event that I've read about in the church news sheet. So they'd go home, and if they didn't have the person's number written in one of those little Refidex things that had everybody's number written down in that you used to keep, they would pick up this book. Some of you young people would never have seen this. It's called The White Pages. It was like this thick, but everybody's name existed in it. And you would just thumb through, and unless your last name was Smith or Jones, 
names you were usually pretty easy to find and you would find someone's name and you'd know where they live and you'd follow the line along and there would be their phone number and you'd pick up your phone and you'd ring them. And you'd say, guess what? I read in the church news sheet on Sunday there, there is this great event the church is running called Date Night. 28th of October, you should come. And that person would take out a pen and paper and say, I accept my invitation to date night. They'd fold it, they'd lick the envelope, put a stamp on it, put it in that mailbox, and three days later, their RSVP would arrive at the church. All systems go. That sounds complicated now, doesn't it? I would love to return to those days. Because now we run an event, and this is what we think. Okay, we should email everybody on our database. Not that we think many people read emailed kind of things, broadcast, but some people do. Make sure that we update our information on the app and get the time and the address right because the GPS mapping of the app is going to send people to the location because we don't use refidexes. Again, all you guys are like, what are you talking about? These big books that used to drive with, or someone would drive it on your knee, like trying to work out where you were driving because there was no such thing as a map on your phone that told you where to go. You had to work it out yourself. But now we've got to make sure it's all right because the GPS app on your phone is going to send you to the event that we've put on the app, but we're not sure that everyone uses the app. So we also make sure that we have a Facebook uh, series of event promotions that go out at the right time that people will read them. We still print some paper copies of most events, try where we do, and we don't do this one very well, but to update the website that is linked to our church, we often question, should we have even more broad social media accounts like Instagram and Twitter and etc., etc., etc.? And despite all these platforms that we post information, people still turn up to events when they're not on. Because that is the complexity that technology has brought our lives. The promise of better things. Think about contact for a minute. When I was a kid, not that long ago, we used to have a thing called a rotary phone. It was about so big, the handle was on a big cord and it had a dial with nine numbers and a zero, or ten numbers, including zero, and you'd have to ring it like this the phone number that you found in the white pages. That was how you made your phone calls. You know the best thing about the rotary phone? Was it was stationed in one position because it was plugged into the wall. You couldn't take it anywhere that you went. And so your capacity to receive a phone call on that phone was completely dependent on your proximity to where the phone lived. So people could contact you, but they could only do it if you were home or in the office or wherever your phone lived. And even if you were in the backyard and you heard the phone ring and you raced into the house and the phone stopped ringing, you missed the call and you were okay with that. Actually, if you were a young person working at McDonald's and the phone rang at like 9.30 at night, you'd usually know that that meant that someone from McDonald's was ringing to ask you to do a 5 a.m. shift the next day. And so you would let the phone ring out because you didn't want to get out of bed for a 5 a.m. shift. But guess what? When you didn't answer the phone, they didn't think, I'll remind him that he never called me back. They would just think, oh, well, we'll try the next person. Now if you, your work rings... They're like, did you see the phone call? Did you return the phone call? How come you didn't respond to my message? I left you a message. I sent you, a, I, I, I sent you an email. I actually texted you about working in the morning. I know you got the text because young people get texts. Uh, parents, let me give you a, a statistic that you can use on your young person. Data and, and research has shown that 100% of text messages get read by their recipients. Okay? 
So when your young person comes home and says, I didn't get your text, mum, dad, about curfew, they're not telling the truth. <laughs> when I tell you that I didn't get your text and haven't responded, well, call me on it. But now it's complex. You see, the reality is, we used to love the day where you could hide from contact, where there was space in your life where people couldn't find you. But now, there is nowhere that we can go in life where we cannot be found by people that want to find us. And often in the most inappropriate places, we're found and we're caught. And when the room starts echoing, you know exactly where someone is when they answer your phone call. Communication says to us, there is nowhere that I can hide from your presence. You heard me? You know when someone answers the phone and it echoes? It's awkward for a minute. There's nowhere that we can hide. There is nowhere that we can go where we cannot be found. You know, Walter Cronkite in, in this little clip that he does, this little new piece that he does, would never have imagined that all the predictions that he gave came true in greater ways than he could ever imagine. But some of the promises that that, that future offered did never eventuate because we live in a world of increasing busyness and growing complexity. You know, so often we take something that in essence should be so simple, and that's the name of this series at the moment, simple, and we complicate it. I want you to hear this line. Our good intentions and our healthy practices can so often be turned into unmanageable burdens and expectations. Let me say it again. Our good intentions and our healthy practices can so easily be turned into unmanageable burdens and expectations. Let me give you a really practical, simple example that many of us will understand. I want you to think about road rules for a minute. Why do we have road rules? Well, we have road rules because people know that roads can be dangerous places. When you put people in vehicles that are anywhere of a ton, two tons, 20 ton, whatever the size of the vehicle, and they drive them, that they can be dangerous places. And I've visited some countries where their road rules are rather loose, and roads are dangerous places. Now, in essence, the reason we have road rules is very simple. We could summarize it something like this. You might put different words, but this is my summation. We have road rules because ultimately what we want to communicate to people is when you're on the road, be careful, drive sensibly, and take care of those around you. We could probably summarize road rules into that, couldn't we? Be careful, drive sensibly, and take care of those around you. Imagine if that was all the road safety campaign needed to comprise of. Just want to remind you of the golden rule of the road. Be careful, drive sensibly, take care of those around you. But we're not always really bright. And the way that people interpret that looks different. And so we need to then define for people what it means to be careful, drive sensibly, and take care of those around you. Because once you get to a certain age, you, you recognise that just driving the car as fast as it can practically go is not a good way to be careful, drive sensibly and take care of those around you. 
even though the car is designed to go a whole lot faster than you can drive it, it doesn't actually help us live the golden rule of being careful, driving sensibly and taking care of those around you. So we start to define what it means to be careful and drive sensibly and take care of those around you. And it always starts with one or two rules. Well, let's define it. Let's put some limits on the speed by which people should drive on the road. And then we probably need to define it a bit further. Let's put some limit on the speed that people drive on the road when there's a school there. Let's put limit on the speed that people drive on the road when there's road work. And the breadth of the rules continues to evolve. And it keeps evolving because we need to define for people what it means to be careful, drive sensibly, and care for others on the road. I started to print out the road transport operations legislation from the Queensland government. I got about 18 pages in, and then I realised I couldn't find anything in there about speed or seatbelts. And this was 522 pages. So I stopped, and I re-googled, and I realised not only was there a 522-page document that had been created to help define how people should deal with roads and treat roads and and build the infrastructure of roads, I'd actually missed the core legislation I was looking for, which was the 422 pages of legislation that makes up the Queensland road rules that helps all of us understand what it means to be careful, drive sensibly, and take care of those around you. And I would love to gift this to someone in our church today. So husbands, feel free to nominate your wives, and wives, feel free to nominate your husbands if you think that they could do with some light reading of the 422 pages of legislation that's going to help them understand what it means to be careful, drive sensibly, and take care of those around you. You can come and see me later. I'll only give you the first 20 pages because the other 400 I thought wasn't worth wasting paper on printing for the sake of a prop. But you see what I mean? We take something that in essence is very simple and we make it complicated. And so in that legislation, we tell people about seatbelts and seatbelts for different ages. We tell people about speed limits. We tell them how to use safety triangles if they break down on the roadside. We tell them how to use fog lights and hazard lights and parking lights and number plate lights and indicator lights and how to make turns at the right place in the right way at the right time. We talk to them about parking. Did you know that if you park, you're not allowed more than three metres away from your vehicle without the car locked and the windows secured? Did you realise that? Did you realise if you leave your car that you can't have someone uh, in the car? You have to have someone over the age of 16 in the car if you move more than three metres away from your car. You, you can't leave the keys in if you're a kid. So if your 15-year-old son or daughter sitting in the car on the road at the front of your house and you forgot your handbag, you are not legally meant to leave the keys in the car while you race back in the front door to get your handbag, which is five and a half metres from the road where your car is parked. Do you realise that that's in the legislation and why is it? Because at some point something went wrong with someone under the age of 16 and so we legislated to help people understand what it means to be careful, drive sensibly and take care of those around you. We make life complicated. But we do this with our faith. We do this with our faith all the time. We make life complicated. 
And so often Jesus says something that the essence of it is so very simple. But in our humanity, we can't work out what he actually means. And so we start adding to it to the point where things that are created to be good and beneficial and simple become complicated and overbearing and unmanageable. One of the greatest examples we find in the Bible is around an issue known as the Sabbath. And if you haven't heard of the Sabbath, part of uh, the Ten Commandments, the law that God gave Moses in the very beginning, one of the Ten Commandments said that people should keep the Sabbath day. They should, one day in seven, they should set aside and rest and keep it holy. Because, you know, the story of creation said that God worked really hard for six days and then had a rest. And in reflecting our creator and the way that God's made us in his image, we too are not created to live lives of perpetual motion. So therefore, we should reflect God's own intent and actually have a day of rest, a day that we set aside that is holy to God. Jesus one day is walking with his disciples through some grain fields and his disciples start picking some of the wheat and there's a whole bunch of people, Pharisees, they're called in the Bible, they're, they're religious leaders, they're very legalistic and very narrow-minded around issues of faith. M most of the time, they're really good people. But they're following Jesus, trying to catch him out, and they see his people, his followers, his disciples, picking wheat from the wheat fields, and they say, ah, oh, we found you out, Jesus. The Sabbath law says that you must not pick grain on the Sabbath because that equates to work, and that equates to energy expulsion, and that is breaking the law because according to the Pharisees, what they did was unlawful. And in that moment, Jesus has a discussion with them, and he lands on a very, very pertinent line. He ends up saying to them this. You can find this in Mark chapter 2. He says this, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now, what's Jesus mean? God gave us this great concept known as the Sabbath. It's a day of rest because you were never created to live life with perpetual motion. Now, you can do it, but the way God's created you to function best is to actually build in some times of stopping and resting and enjoying his presence and enjoying the presence of those around you and not being productive and not creating anything and not ticking anything else off the list. And so many of us find this so hard to do. But God said, that's actually the way I've created you to function best, not to live a life of perpetual motion. But people heard that principle and they said, well, what does it mean to rest? If we're meant to have a day of rest, if we're meant to be unproductive, if we're meant to set it aside for worship and fellowship, what does it mean? And so over time, people took this very simple concept of stop and rest and complicated it. And by the time Jesus came around and the Pharisees are following Jesus, they'd actually taken the law of the Sabbath and added hundreds of stipulations and definitions around what it meant to live the law of the Sabbath, what it meant to stop and rest. And over time that changed. There's a story that happened in what the Bible calls the intertestamental, or what we call the intertestamental period. In other words, there's a 400 odd year gap between the last book of the Old Testament 
and when the New Testament writes. So a 400-year historical gap where the Bible doesn't, that we have, writes nothing. There's nothing said in the Bible, but history obviously continued. And one of the stories that comes out of this time of history was that at a particular point in history, the Greeks uh, invaded and actually laid siege to a whole bunch of Jewish people on the day of the Sabbath, and because of their Sabbath stipulations and laws, they refused to take up arms and defend themselves because in their mind, to defend themselves was breaking the law of the Sabbath. And so 1,000 people were slaughtered because of their adherence to the Sabbath laws. And so then things got adjusted around that, and someone made a new law that said, well, you can defend yourself, but you can't start the fight, but you can protect yourself against the fight and all these laws kept getting added to the sabbath law to the point where people were so anxious about not getting it wrong and actually doing what god asked them to do that they lost the heart that god intended in it from the very beginning which is god created us to stop and rest and they might have been resting physically but their minds were racing so hard thinking man if i pick that piece of weed or if i write that letter if i do that thing at home if my kids spill something and i pick it up or if i'm not at that event or what when am I breaking the law and when am I not? And so Jesus ends up saying, you guys have lost the plot. He says, understand the Sabbath was actually something God instituted to serve you. It's there for your benefit. It's there for your good. It's there because it actually makes you a better person. It actually helps you do life better. It actually helps you relate to your family better. It actually helps you turn up the work on Monday morning like refreshed and ready to go, ready to give your all in the thing that I've called you to do. The Sabbath is something I created to serve you, but you guys have complicated it so much that now the Sabbath is something that you serve. Stop taking the simple principles and making them so complicated. They legislated it so much that they lost the intent that it was created for. And this whole series that we're going to teach over this term is just called Simple. And it's built very much around this premise that so much of what Jesus says is incredibly simple. Simple doesn't mean easy. It doesn't mean it's easy to apply, it's easy to live. But it's simple. And we need to at times just come back to the simple truth, the simple principle, the simple command of Jesus and not allow it to be overcomplicated in our lives because for so many of us life is so complex with all its competing demands and opportunities it's so easy to lose sight of the simple truths that Jesus calls us to live by and we touched on this a little bit last week but the greatest place to start in the simplest of Jesus teachings comes in a conversation that he has with one of these Pharisees one of these religious leaders and again it's a conversation born out of the Pharisee trying to trick Jesus but the Pharisee says Jesus or teacher he calls him what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus says this. This is in Matthew chapter 22. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. Go listen to last week's message if you want to dig into that a bit more. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now listen to what Jesus says. All, all the law and the prophets, everything written, everything spoken, hangs on these two commandments. In other words, Jesus wants to say, okay, let me just wrap up all the law, all the legislation you've created, the life that you know that I've called you to live, and let me summarize it and simplify it and give you a fantastic soundbite that you can tweet. It's that short. What are the two greatest commandments? What are the things that sum up everything else? Love God with everything 
That's the first and the greatest. And then love your neighbor as yourself. See, that's so simple. Not easy. Anyone that's tried to apply that would know it's not easy. But it's simple. And it's not easy because for so many of us, taking that simple truth and applying it becomes a question not just of our devotion but of our priorities. How do we place God first when there is so much competing for our time, our devotion and our affection? Let me just say a couple of really practical things here and I'm sorry these aren't on the screen. I'm going to post some notes up from today's sermon on the app in the next 24 hours so you can download them. I'll make sure these are in there. But some really, really practical things I want to say about how do we actually keep the simple truths of Jesus in our priorities alive in our life. First, I want to say this. Everything that you say yes to is something that you say no to. Everything that you say yes to is another thing that you say no to. If you haven't worked it out, then you can't do everything or you can't do everything well. And so at some point, if you're someone that keeps saying yes, there's going to be a sacrifice at some point. Here's the sobering truth. Usually the thing that gets sacrificed is the thing that if we're challenged matters the most to us. I think if I grabbed a whole bunch of you and took you to a room and said, you've got three things to tell me that matter the most to you in life. They'd look something like this. For those of you that have faith in Jesus, you'd probably say my relationship with Jesus is in that top three. For those of you that are married, you'd probably say uh, the relationship with my husband or wife or, or my boyfriend or girlfriend or future husband or wife, or whatever, that's somewhere in that top three. If you've got kids here today, you'll probably say my family, my children. Even if you don't have kids, you'd probably say my family exists somewhere in my top three. They'd all be about people and relationships. But you know what? The reality is the more we say yes to so it's usually those simple things that start actually falling off the back end of the wagon because you can't say yes to everything without starting to say no to some other things. And the question you've always got to ask yourself is, are you content with what it is that's going to be sacrificed for you to say yes to this new thing? Parents, let me talk to you for a minute. And please, I do this humbly, and this is a challenge for me, a father of five kids, I know the weight and the challenge of this. But one of the things that concerns me, and I see it as a concern in my own life, is that sometimes in our families and with our kids, we sign into this thing called opportunities. And it goes like this. Part of my role as a parent is to give my kid every opportunity in life. So we sign them up for creative arts and we sign them up for sport and we sign them up for exercise classes and we sign them up for academic kind of extensions and we sign them up to go on farm stays and we sign them up to or whatever. You can fill in the gaps because if you're like my family, you know what comes home in the, in the bag or through the email every week about the opportunities for your kids. And there's something in your head saying, man, if I don't let my kid play lacrosse this year, maybe there's an undiscovered Olympic talent there that I don't even know if lacrosse is an Olympic sport. But you, have you had the dialogue in your head that says, if I don't give my kid the opportunity to play lacrosse and play at a competitive level, how will I ever know if they were born to play lacrosse for Australia? But I also better get them riding horses and I also better get them learning the oboe because, man, how can they play, you know, great ice house songs unless they know how to play the oboe? And in my age, I want them to discover who ice house is. You guys are going to go or Google ice house and watch a guy by the name of Ivor Davies play the best oboe that you'll see. 
Did you understand this? We live this thing of going, we need to, we need to just give our kid every opportunity in the world. But here's the reality, because it's true for your child as well as it is for you. Everything you say yes for them is something else that you'll say no for them. And at some point, you've got to sit down and say, what are the things that matter the most? And if they are the things that matter the most, are they reflected in the time and the opportunity we give to them? So everything you say yes to is another thing that you'll say no to. Secondly, just because you can doesn't mean you should. I love having this conversation with people as we invite them into serving roles in this church. And I would unashamedly say that we think everybody should find their place to use the gifts that God has placed inside of you to serve and bless others. I find it so much easier to invite people to come and serve on a team if I know that they have the capacity to say no. Because I've worked with people that say yes to everything and then six weeks in, they're bitter, it's an obligation, they're snapping at everybody around them, but there's people that have said no to me numerous times and I know when they finally do say yes, that they're saying yes because they're in. And they've already discovered the truth of the principle that just because you can doesn't mean that you should. And, and, and I guess really the heart behind this principle is a principle of discernment. Because there's a whole lot of very gifted people here and there's a whole lot of great things that we could all do and could find time for and probably have the skill for. But what's the thing that God's calling you to do? Because just because you can doesn't mean that you should, but just because you can means that you at least have to come before God and say, is this the thing you have for me? Because when you operate in the place that God has for you, you'll find the greatest joy and satisfaction in yourself, but others will be blessed with the greatest level of joy and satisfaction. Number three, good things often need to give way for great things. In priorities, good things often need to give way for great things. Again, you've only got seven days in your week. One day God suggests is a really good day for you to have as a day of rest where you take the foot off the pedal and enjoy some time of recreation and some time of worship and some time of reconnection, some time of rest. So on those other six days, there's only certain hours in the day and you need to sleep to function well, you need to eat to function well, you need some time with the key relationships around you to function well. There's probably, for many of you, there's a job that you have to turn up with and function well in that job or you won't have a job next week and it's going to make some of the other things you do in life a bit more difficult. So you've only got limited time. And there's a lot of good things you can do in that time. But if it's a competing of priorities, what are the good things and what are the great things? Sometimes good things have to give way for great things. And number four, the things that matter the most are often the things that get swallowed up by the things that yell the loudest. Any bosses or managers in here? You got people in your office that are the loudest whingers, the loudest complainers, the loudest whatever, and you've got to work so hard not to always jump and deal with their issue and miss out on the people that just diligently get away and along with their work. You know, we know in life that often the things that yell the loudest get the most attention. But because of that, it's often the things that matter the most that get swallowed up by them. And all those relational things that I spoke of before, family and faith and, and being part of the faith community, being sitting in these seats on a Sunday... I mean, they get swallowed up by all this other stuff that comes, all these other good things that we let replace, the great things, all these things that come that we can do that we shouldn't do, all those things that we've said yes to that meant we've said no to a whole bunch of other stuff. 
I want to encourage you when it comes to your life, if you really want to know what it means to put God first and to love God with everything and to then love others as you love yourself, all of us have got to come to a place where we ask some really hard questions about how that's reflected in our priorities. Jesus, uh, is, the Bible tells us a story of Jesus visiting the home of two sisters. I'm going to land here, so Jimmy, you can bring the crew up. All the young guys are just like, they're all like, just give me nachos, or I know mum and dad say I can't drink Coke, but I'm going to ask really hard to drink Coke. If not, I'm going to sneak a coffee, even though I don't drink coffee, because, man, this guy's, Andrew's voice is so monotone and so soothing, and <laughs> I'm just going into a place right now of great joy and satisfaction. And Did I just snort? Did anyone hear me? Ever done that? You guys have done really well. Jake's even got his pillow out. It's extreme, Jake. <laughs> If I ever see your parents or anyone of their ilk have with a pillow in church, they'll be in trouble, but you can get away with it today, okay? Jesus goes to the home of two sisters, Mary and Martha, their names are, right? Mary and Martha. And Jesus is there as a visitor. He's there to speak to the people in the house and others inevitably would have joined and come and just wanted to hear what Jesus had to say. But Mary and Martha take two very different poses in relation to Jesus. See, Mary, uh, Mary is just completely just overawed by the fact that Jesus is in my house. And suddenly the mess of the house, she doesn't see it. The fact that there's dishes in the sink, she doesn't see it. The fact the bins haven't been taken out, she doesn't see it. The fact that the bed didn't get made that morning and, you know, it's really, we don't like having people to our house if the sink's full and the bed's not made. And, you know, Mary's probably thinking, man, there's all these things. How embarrassed got people, uh, Martha's thinking, got all these things happening and Mary's just like oblivious to it. She doesn't see it because Jesus is there and she just wants to sit and listen to Jesus. We don't read this scandal into this story, but, but understand the scandal of this story because Mary actually went completely overawed by the presence of Jesus and sat in a place that culturally her as, as a woman would never have sat. She just took the liberty to walk into a space where she usually wouldn't be Invited and say, well, I don't really care what you all think. I'm here with Jesus. And guess what? Jesus is really cool about that. Because then her sister, Martha, she sees the mess and the dishes and the unmade bed and the dirty floor. And she gets busy. She's thinking, people are here. I've got to get food for them. And I've got to lay the table and let's get the good cutlery out because Jesus is a fairly important guest. She gets busy, 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 busy. But as she's getting busy, she looks at Mary, who in her eyes is just being lazy and just enjoying the guest. And she starts to get frustrated with Mary in her heart. It's like, come on, Mary, can't you see how much there is to do? There's so much to do. There's so many things that we've got to tick off the list. And we've got an important guest here, but you're just in there enjoying his company while I'm making sure he has a good time. And Jesus ends up addressing Martha and he says this, Martha, Martha. He says it twice, Martha, Martha. The Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things. But few things are needed, and indeed only one. And Martha, I know you're busy, and I know you're doing a great job, and I know you're showing great hospitality, but Martha, I want to say something that's going to bite a little bit here. Mary's chosen what's better, and that will not be taken away from her. See, Jesus comes to visit. Mary sits, and Martha works. Mary soaks, and Martha stews. 
Mary ignores social convention, and Martha just sticks with the norm. Mary shows the devotion she has to Jesus by her very presence, whereas Martha seeks his approval by her busyness. Jesus says, Martha. He really wants to say, Martha, just put the tea towel down for a minute. Just come and hang at my feet. You know what? Some of us have overcomplicated life so much that when Jesus says, oh, let me sum everything up for you. Love God with everything and love your neighbor as yourself. Man, we got so busy and we've made life so complicated that we've just lost sight of how simple that can be. How simple an invitation it is just at times to come and sit at the feet of Jesus. But you know what? Just wanting it or desiring it or feeling like that's a place we want to sit in is not going to make it happen. Some of us are going to walk away this week and do something really practical. We need to pull out our diary. Probably not the paper diary. A few of you probably still do use the paper diary, but you're the ones with the rotary dial phone still. But those of us who got our diary and our phone or our computer need to sit with it and go, man, what's some good things that I need to let go of for the sake of some greater things? What's some no's that I need to say for the sake of saying some yes to some other things. What's some places I need to be to prioritize the things that matter the most and live this simple life that Jesus calls to me, a life of devotion, a life of love, and a life of transformation that comes when we find the space to sit at his feet. You see, I reckon Jesus would want to say to some of you today the very words that he spoke to Martha, Martha, Martha. Insert your name in there. You are worried and you're upset about many things, but only a few things are needed, or indeed, only one. Jesus invites you to rearrange your priorities and to sit at his feet and to receive the goodness that comes from that place. Hey, why don't you pray with me this morning? Actually, why don't we all stand? Come on, you guys need to get on your feet and wiggle your toes a bit, so let's jump on our feet. God, you made it so simple. We make it so complex. And God, so often life is complex. Lord, for many of us, family right now is complex. And work right now is complex. And trying to juggle all the things that, you know, even though we've tried to move stuff out of our life, just trying to juggle, you know, young kids or university-age kids or kids in transition or or trying to juggle some of the relationship tensions that we have or some of the financial pressures. Lord, it's difficult. And life is complex and life is busy. But God, in the midst of all of that, we're losing sight of the simple truths that you bring to us. That is first priority in life. We're called to love you with all that we got. To find space just to hang with you. To find space just to soak in your presence. To find space where we're not just talking at you, but we're actually stopping talking and allowing you to speak to us. Time to soak in the beauty of the creation that you've given us. Time to soak in the beauty of the community that you've formed around us. God, I just want to pray that as we get a hold again of the beautiful simplicity of the life you call us into, a life of love and devotion with you and love and devotion of others. May some of us have the courage this week to reset some of the priorities that we need to reset and to find the space that you're calling us into. We pray these things in Jesus' name. All together, let's say it. Amen.
Amen. Come on, let's sing together, church.